All right, and here we go. All right, Moises Goldman and Sherry Masonav, thank you very much. I appreciate you guys joining me uh, for the podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation uh, since I booked it because it's such a, an amazing story. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Moises, going to start with you. If you would just, um, we're, we'll talk about the book a little bit later on. Um, if you could just start by telling a little bit about your mother's uh, upbringing, uh, where she was born, where she was brought up, um, just to give us a little background about where uh, she came from. She came from Poland. She was born in a small place called Zelum, Poland, and uh, which it was like a shtetl. That's what we called it in Yiddish. You know, it's a small town uh, where there is a lot of Jewish people, farmers, etc., etc. If you saw Fiddler on the roof, you know, something similar to that, maybe a little bit more uh, contemporaneous. And how old was your mother when uh, World War II broke out? When World War II broke out, uh my mom was somewhere between the 17th and the 18th year of age and how many children in her family and where did she fit in uh, was she a, an older child a middle child she was one of 11 and uh, uh she had uh, six older brothers and one older sister that migrated to the Americas. The sister, the oldest one, ended up in New York City and the other six brothers went to Mexico City. Oh, wow. So they, they uh, were far and wide. Yep. Now, when... Ninth, ninth born of 11. Ninth of 11. Ninth, wow. Ninth of 11. Wow, that's amazing. So... At what point during the war, how far into it, um, was she taken to Auschwitz? And did how many of her siblings were also uh, taken with her? Uh, you're asking me? Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, my mother, her, her younger brother, Joel, uh, her two younger sisters, uh, Rachel and Sarah, they they were taken away from their home. They went to the ghetto, and then they spent almost three years in the ghetto. And then somewhere around, I believe, December 7th of 1942, they, they moved them into a train, and the, the train went to Auschwitz. And what were from what you learned from her tapes and so on, and, and for people who aren't aware of what the ghettos were like, what were the conditions like at that time in those ghettos? The conditions were very bad. My mom, uh, along with her father and mother and the two younger sisters, they they moved them into a one room meal which was 
already occupied by another family so they have the one room meal between the other family and and uh and them and uh they were there for almost uh three years and ed scott they had no furniture and no kitchen it was an old abandoned meal and they came in a little bit later. The ghetto was already full with its regular housing when the Monlike family came in. So it was an actual former working mill that yes. they were forced yes. to live in. Yes. Wow, wow. And uh, what happened to your uh, to your mom's parents uh, in uh, during the wartime? Uh, my both of my grandparents they die in the ghetto. Uh, my Bobby, uh, uh, my grandmother, she uh, fainted uh, when she found out that they moved my mother into a jail within the ghetto, and she cracked her sternum and. Uh, uh, obviously, even an aspirin was very hard to find, and uh, so she died after cracking her sternum. My grandfather, uh, a few months later, uh, was the Gestapo game came into the mill, and they took him out, and they shot him in the back of the head. Wow. So I'm just trying to picture what your grandmother went through. Obviously, cracking a sternum is very painful. Uh, no medical attention, obviously. No painkillers. No. So that must have been that must have been unbelievably unbelievable agony for her. If yes. I say they they transported her, one of the Gestapo transported her to the ghetto hospital but she received no treatment there. They didn't even clean her up. She had no medication at all. Mm, wow. And so let's, uh, we'll move forward a bit. So that was a good little bit of background. So I'll just ask you, Sherry Naus, to let you chime in. So how did you become uh, associated with uh, Moises and his family and get involved in, in the, the project of the book? Well, I guess I could say that Providence shined a light on me um, on an afternoon when my husband, Stephen Masonoff, met Moises uh, through a business associate, and they struck up um, an accord and then decided to get the wives together. And then we, we met for dinner, and Moises began telling me about his mother's story, which was appalling and also inspiring, but so horrendous. Mm -hmm. And... Um, since I was a pre, an author, had published uh, multiple books, uh, we began talking about um, he wanted his mother's story. It was his dream to have his mother's story told in a public way and through a book initially. Interesting. It's crazy how sometimes fate uh, brings the right people uh, into your life to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Yes. Um, Moises, so... Let's talk about uh, the the tapes. Uh, your mom um, was obviously ill at the time, and you can tell the story about her illness and her recording the tapes. So at what point did you find out uh, 
did you know she was recording these tapes as she was doing it or did you find out afterwards? I, <clears throat> well, let, let me give you a little bit of background. In, in January of 1985, uh, she was diagnosed terminal by the MD Anderson in Houston. They gave her about three to four months to live. At that point in time, she requested a tape player, a cassette tape player, and she started taping those tapes. She taped 11 45-minute tapes of her life. Now, I was living at the time in Chicago. I started a new job there, but uh, I was pretty, pretty high in the executive chain. So every two weeks, I will fly down to Mexico and I will see her for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then I will fly Sunday night or Monday morning back to Chicago. And I did that for, for <laughs> quite, a, quite some time. And uh, my mom recorded those tapes. And, and when I went down to Mexico to visit with her, well, she was recording at times. but And I knew she was recording about her life, but I did not have any idea of why she was doing it until I listened to the tapes. And then I found out. You said that she had three to four, that she was given three to four months uh, at the time when she decided to record those tapes. Right. So how long after that three to four month diagnosis did she pass? Actually, my mom went into a coma right after, I will say within a week or so from recording her 11th tape. I don't know if she was gonna record a 12th tape or whatever, but uh, that's when she went into a coma. And uh, she lasted in a coma for about two weeks and then she died on May 5th of 1985. Now, Moises, if you could just tell the story about, um, was it your father? that almost urged her to record no or no, was no, my on the contrary my father was very much against talking about the holocaust when when i was growing up in mexico he didn't like talking about the holocaust my mom on the other hand every time she got a chance she will blurb something out about her experience in the Holocaust. It's funny how that works with uh, with people, and you can both talk to this. If you talk, you know, soldiers, like modern soldiers, anyone that's been through anything traumatic, some people like to talk, not like to talk about it, but some people are willing to talk about it. Some people will just lock it away and, and not say a word about it. And that sounds like there was that kind of dichotomy between your mother and father as well. Yeah, there was that di dichotomy and, uh, but uh, how should I say this? Uh, I had the tapes for quite a long time and, but every time I tried to listen to the tapes, uh, I, I just couldn't probably five minutes and, I will start crying like a baby and uh, 
because I will hear my mom alive. When I mm -hmm. moved to Austin, Texas, uh, I was semi-retired at the time that I moved, so I started listening to the tapes, and, and that's when I realized, my gosh, this is not just a story. This is something very big, a lot of travails, a lot of adventure. Uh, Sherry can can tell you more about it because uh, uh, she's very detailed in, in her explanations. And uh, but uh, after I listened to the tapes, like Sherry said, I, I met with Stephen for for lunch and I said to him, you know, I have those tapes, I, I listen to them. This is not just a biography of my mom. This can be a novel, uh, uh, so, something very, very big. And that's when Stephen Olson said to me, do you know my wife is a very famous writer? And uh, I said, oh my gosh. So that's when I met Sherry. Sherry, I, I, this was almost four years, four years ago, right, Sherry? Yes. Well, I think, yeah, a little over four years ago, yes. A little bit right. over four years ago. Mm -hmm. I think that Sherry asked me to, for two transcriptions or three transcriptions of the tapes. And mm -hmm. after she read the transcriptions, she says, I'm in. And that's how we started. And Sherry, so you read the transcripts of the tapes. Did Have you heard the actual tapes or are they not in a language that, are they not in an English? No, they were not in English. They were in Spanish and Yiddish. And I speak un poquito Spanish. <laughs> so um, Moises translated and transcribed them and Yes, after reading them, I literally heard the voice of my soul that Hinda Monlet Goldman, she was a heroine, not only of, um, just not only of the Holocaust, I mean, not only of Auschwitz, but an absolute heroine of the Holocaust. She had an unbreakable spirit that is, and I love words, but it's hard to describe her amazing, unbreakable spirit. And that spirit obviously continued until her last days because obviously if you're given three to four months to live, um, I, I can speak for myself that, you know, there'd be a million things going through my head and to have the internal uh, strength to say, okay, I'm going to use these last few months that I have to record this story uh, so that other people can can read it. That alone takes an incredible amount of strength. Fortitude and strength and just willpower. I'm sure she was feeling physically terrible and had little strength to do that. But that would that was Henda. She would she would do that um, for sure. And, and, she, you, and she had the the impetus from the letter her father wrote to her the day that he was killed by the Gestapo and that he said, I know for certain you will live and you will tell. 
and it's he like willed her to tell to survive and tell this story and so i think that was on her heart as well those words were emblazoned upon her heart and she felt it was time to now really tell her story and as sherry as you're reading these transcripts um not that it's like we've all had that book that we just can't put put down and that we want to keep reading obviously this isn't wasn't for entertainment but did you you must have found that just incredibly riveting to to read i did i did and um riveting and appalling i i started having nightmares um of of soldiers bursting into my home and taking, you know, me and my family and confiscating all of our, our goods in our home. I and mean, I started having the nightmares really living and feeling what she was experiencing. And I will say that as I read that, as I read Moises's translations and when I started writing, Hinda would fill the room. Her spirit just filled the room, surrounded me. And um, I think she should be named as an author too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Moises, so on an earlier episode of my podcast, I interviewed a gentleman from Scotland who was the victim as a young boy of uh, sexual abuse. And I asked him, I said, how did you sit down to write this book? Because dredging up those terrible memories must have been really difficult as you're trying to put those words onto paper. And he basically said he could write maybe a, a page or a couple of pages or a few pages, and then he had to set it aside because it was just too much for him. Is that how it was for you when you were listening to your, to your mom's tapes? You know, when I listened to my mom's tapes, because they were done in a sequential basis, uh, I die with her. Uh, I literally die with her. And then at the end of the 11th tape, you know, sort of like I said to myself, if she is brave enough to, to put those words into the tapes, I'm going to be brave enough to, to get... Basically, what I did is I promised my mother to finish up what her grand, what her father promised to her, that was my promise to my mom. And What's actually, it? after the 11th tape, uh, I think I got as brave as my mom did, and mm -hmm. and, and uh, the rest is right there. Sherry did uh, a marvelous work, marvelous work. Well, the beauty of if you can find beauty in, in such a story is the passing on of, you know, your mom wanted to fulfill her father's last wishes. You wanted to fulfill your mother's last wishes. So, you know, even among all the horror and the tragedy of what took place, there's, there's a beauty in, in that part of it where, you can fulfill your mother's wishes and she fulfilled her father's. Yeah, yeah. When uh, the book was finished, 
you know, I, I felt a tremendous amount of satisfaction that uh, I did what I promised my mom I was going to do and what uh, basically her, my grandfather promised to her too. So my grandfather's promise to her was my promise to my mom. Mm -hmm. And let's touch a little bit. I don't want to get too much into too many stories about uh, her time at Auschwitz. Um, you know, people will read the book. Um, how, un, how surreal is it to hear those tapes, hear those stories and think, wow, this is, this is my mother that went through this. It, it just, it almost must be hard to believe. It was totally surreal. For me, it was very painful and uh, very surreal. But the, you know, it's funny, at the end of the 11th tape, I just felt like my mom like my mother, a very strong spirit. And uh, my mom was a very brave woman. Mm, um, absolutely. And she she's passed that um, on to you. I, you know, I, I like to think of it that way, that as you were listening to those tapes, she was giving you the strength to to listen all the way through and, and carry out this project. Well, my mom always was my best friend and my guiding light. My father was very disciplinarian with me, and uh, that's when I needed to do something. Uh, I would go to my mom for permission, because if I went to my dad and he said no, that was the end of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Sherry, so working on the book, uh, how long did it take from start to finish uh, your part of putting this book together? Well, Scott, it was four full years and mm -hmm. some of that including includes editing and rewrites, but it was four full years full time um, working on this. And it just, um, it was truly a massive project because I, I yearned for Hinda's story to be widely read. And I wanted it to bring it so alive on the written page that the reader experienced firsthand what, what she and her family were experiencing, that they were there living that too. And so that took, um, it, it took a lot of um, thought in, in just how to, how to get that onto the written page into a full book. Uh, we decided to create two subplots, a, a doctor that um, saved Tenda's life when she had malaria at Auschwitz, Walter Zielhofen, and then um, I don't want to give too much away in the story, but another character, Wolf Yoskowitz, who turned out to be very prominent in Hinda and Moises' life. Um, and so creating that, those two subplots, um, also made the book a little more complex, but I also think a lot more readable. Many of the readers have told us they appreciated those subplots because Hinda's story is just so horrendous that they needed some rest from that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so Moises, amongst all the horror of Auschwitz uh, and through your mother's words on her tapes, were there a lot of stories of, um, let's say, the good side of humanity, uh, you know, people helping people in Auschwitz as much as they possibly could? Uh, were there bright lights in that or was it just everyone trying to deal with a horrific situation as best that they possibly could? Well, you know, you, you, you heard Sherry talking about the subplots of Dr. Dr. Walter, which we never knew his last name. And Sherry came with the word Seinhofen for his last name. But, uh, and I think that we argue at the beginning whether Walter was a Jewish doctor or a or a Nazi doctor or whatever. I don't know if you remember, Sherry, that part then. Well, I remember from your mother's tapes that he was a Catholic, so it wasn't likely that he was Jewish. <laughs> no, the, 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 the yes. point was that in none of the tapes, my mother said Walter is a German doctor. He never, she never said that in the tapes. Okay. He always referred to Walter as Dr. Walter at the concentration camp, blah, blah, blah. So I fear that uh, the fact that uh, she did not say whether Walter was German or not, uh, I fear she, he was German, you know. Now, I correct you'll correct me if I'm wrong on this, but... Um, did your mother help one of her sisters uh, to escape from Auschwitz? Yes, my my mom uh, became a mother and my a father to my, her two younger sisters. Uh, Rachel was six years younger than her, and uh, Sarah was ten years younger than her. So when they went through the selection, she couldn't. Uh, uh, helped Sarah. Sarah died in the crematoriums right away. But during the chaos, uh, she pulled Rachel from one line towards her line, which was the, and that was, that's how she saved Rachel. And at what year when, was that that they escaped? 19, oh, the, the, the escape? Yes. January 1945, the first week in Jan January 1945. Okay. And so let's uh, we'll move a little bit forward. So after they escaped from Auschwitz, where did they go then? What what happened next? Well, they, were, they found themselves in the rural area near Auschwitz, just miles from Auschwitz. And the, they, they jumped on, it was snowing very, very hard and they had low visibility. They jumped on a trailer with hay on it and they hid in the hay. The driver had hidden his coat in the hay. So he stops because it's freezing and the snow has turned more wet. And he gets out and he discovers them there and he locks them in a barn and plans to take them to back to Auschwitz the next morning. Um, but Hinda finds an escape route out of the barn and amazingly, and they, they go, they walk 
a kilometer or kilometer and a half. Uh, it's very early in the morning, still dark, four in the morning, and they find a two-story home that had a light on. And they went there and um, they were allowed to stay there for a week. And that's an entire story too, where they were gonna be kicked out, but Henda's boldness once again, um, you know, some people are bold and they're stupid. Henda was bold and she was brilliant. She knew she could think so quickly on her feet and she knew how to assess in a, situ a situation and read people. And so she spoke with this family, Mr. Melick, um, the, the head of the family, Mr. Melick, and he took her to the barn and she told him the whole story that they were escapees from Auschwitz. And he then let them stay for one week, but one week only. Mm -hmm. and so then from there, a Gestapo officer takes them and then they end up staying in his home for like six weeks. And then they're on to another, they're kicked out of there and they're on to uh, say in an elderly couple's home in very rural. Um, she wasn't even sure where they were at that point. So many lines had been redrawn, redrawn with the war. Mm -hmm. And it, it goes on and on. They had so many interesting, intriguing travails. And many times it was the kindness of others that saved them, but it was always because of Hinda's courage. So an officer with the Gestapo gave them shelter for... Yes, yes. Wow. This is fascinating. It's because this shows you how smart Hinda was in that she told him that she could help save him from the Russians because at that point, the Red Army was approaching that area. Right, because this was 45, right? Yes, and you know the Red Army actually freed Auschwitz in, I think, January 25th of 1945. So they were approaching that area, and the German, the German uh, people were very afraid of the Russians coming in and taking them over. And she convinced him, showing him her Auschwitz tattoo, that if she showed the Russians that, because they wanted to take Hitler down, that they would then, if she told him that the, the Gestapo officer and his family, the Almoses, had been very kind to them, had saved her life and protected her, that they would then not kill him. Hey everybody, this is Scott, the host of the Sunday Morning Coffee Podcast. I would like to invite you to support the show through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash smcpod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash smcpod, where for only four US dollars per month, you can get early access to episodes and members-only content. Once again, that's patreon.com slash smcpod, and I thank you for your support. Wow. That's how smart she was. That's and amazing. And she's a teenage girl at the time. Well, she is, um, this is she, 45. She was born in 1921. So, um, she was almost 24 or 24. Almost, right. Mm -hmm. But still to have that wherewithal at that age while going through all of that and trying to save your life and your sister's life, that's, Right. Incredible. And remember, they were malnourished. They had been starved for years and years and years. So, you know, you get brain fog typically with uh, such severe malnourishment. 
but she still was able to somehow think clearly. And as you you know, you mentioned earlier that they escaped, they saw the the home with the light on. She had no idea who was in that home. No. That could have been anybody. That could have been another Nazi officer yeah. that yeah. could have just dragged them back. Right. But you've got to take the chance, right? Like you've got yes. to and that that's was Hinda. She was always willing to take the chance. And so after the war ends, Moises, um, where does your mother go after the war ends? Oh, she 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 ended up in a place called Breslau, which uh, at that particular point in time, I think was part of Germany, but before that was Polish. And then the Germans, they return uh, Breslau to Poland. And I think that the Polish name is Rolak or something like that for Breslau. And uh, it's Worklaw. Uh, excuse me? Worklaw, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, Sherry, Sherry knows how to speak Polish <laughs> better than I. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's where she met my, my father in Breslau. And uh, uh, two weeks later or so after she met my father, my father said, to my mom, maybe you're not in love with me, but I will take care of you for the rest of my life. And, and that's what happened. Oh, he proposed that's, a very romantic, beautiful proposal under a full moon. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's yes. great. And so, Moises, where did your parents, after uh, they met and were together, where did they spend the majority of their lives together? In Mexico City. In Mexico? Yeah. My mother tried to get in touch with her brothers. Uh, uh, one of the brothers, Jack, which was maybe, he always said he, he was younger than my mom, but that's not true. He was like a little, two, two, two years older than her. Uh, got in contact with my mom. They they uh, proposed to meet in Paris. Uh, so my mom, her sister Rachel, and the two husbands at the time they they went to Paris. They waited for my uncle Jack to get there. Uh, Jack was already very well connected in Mexico City from a political point of view. He was a political journalist. So uh, he got them to the passports. Uh, actually, they he got three passports for for my mom, Rachel, and her husband, and my father, Wolf Yoskowicz, uh did not get a passport. But uh, uh, my uncle Jack told my father that there was a visa there. For for somebody called Samuel Goldman, if he was able to take that name, then they all could move to, to Mexico. And that's how Wolf Yoskovich became Samuel Goldman. Hmm. And uh, so that was his legal name in Mexico City, but his friends always called him Wolf. Uh, 
and uh, my mother called him Wolf and uh, but to the employees and or to his business associates he was Don Samuel uh, uh, Samuel called and him. and were you born in Mexico City yeah I was well? born in Mexico in 1949 okay and Moises um Obviously, there, as time goes on, there are fewer and fewer people left to tell these type of stories. Um, and as we have seen from, unfortunately, from current events, um, these are still stories that have to be told so that we don't repeat them again. Um, how important do you think it is to keep the, obviously, uh, it's your mother. It's an incredible story. What do you think of the importance of keeping these stories alive for for those reasons? Because you know, if we uh, if we don't tell these stories, then we're bound to repeat the terrible uh, things that happened in the past. A friend of mine that read the book uh, said to me the other day uh, that book that uh, of your mom it should be read by the next generation so they will not forget or will make the same mistakes that the previous one did mm -hmm. and sherry what what are your thoughts on that well i think we're living in a time that is quite alarming with the possibility of history repeating itself in the past few years well when we saw an you know, unprompted invasion into Ukraine by a dictator. And now we've seen an unprompted attack on Israel uh, with more Jews slaughtered in one day than since the times of the Holocaust. And, you know, 6 million Jews were killed in the Holocaust, 14 million people total, including the Romanis and homosexuals and anyone considered to be, um, you know, not fit. Yeah, not, not a, you know, not part of, not somehow an aberration from what was quote unquote considered normal at that time, which is, you know, an absurd thought, but prevalent at that time. So to me, it's alarming. It's very alarming. And it's also shocking how many young people really don't know about what happened in the Holocaust and the unjust persecution of the Jews. And so it's it's very frightening uh, to see what's happening in today's world with the rise of anti-Semitism and the attacks. Um, so I think education is key. And I think raising the awareness of what did happen in the Holocaust, my, uh, my hope and prayer, and I know it's Moises's too, that by reading this book and that heightened awareness of what really did happen would encourage people to take a stand so that this never happens again. And I mean, that was said a lot, never again. Um, Dwight Eisenhower and you know so many said that never again, but we see never again playing out on our world stage right now. And one of the thing, the most horrifying thing to me other than the attacks themselves and it happened, I know it happened here, I know it happened in cities in the United States, is people out on the street 
basically celebrating those attacks and calling them resistance fighters and all of this other absolute nonsense. Um, how I, I, this is probably too big of a question for any of us to answer, but how did we get to that point where people are celebrating these types of things? I think that is a huge question. And I, I fear that we've become so polarized in such an identity-based society that there's, there's been a contribution there. Um, and then I also, I think there's a factor of the video games that are so popular right now where you kill people and you celebrate and you behead people and you celebrate. And um, it's almost like where we've gone back to a medieval type of mentality. Uh, but that's a huge question, Scott. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. More, we... more than we can begin to answer oh. here. But I, I am fearful of the identity politics that's so prevalent right now, rather than um, seeing people as people and suffering, see their suffering with them. I agree with you on that polarization because it seems like. Uh, if you say, oh boy, the sun's really hot today, there's going to be a hundred people that are screaming, no, it's not. And it, it's just, it's absolutely ridiculous that, and I think social media has probably played a huge part in this because, you know, there's that, um, that ability to say pretty much whatever you want to somebody um, without any fear of any kind of retrib retribution or um, consequences for that. And, and I think that's played a huge part as well in, in this whole kind of shift that we've seen. Yes, I agree with that. Mm -hmm. So when was, did the book come out? Um, who who published it? Um, just give us some details. Uh, for, and I'll ask again as well uh, the title of the book. So if you just tell us, I'll start with you, Sherry. Uh, tell us about the book. Sure. Well, here we have the book, and it's Tante's <laughs> Promise. And it's based on a true story. Now, this is historical fiction, but it is based on a true story of a young woman's escape from Auschwitz. And that young woman is Hinda Monmeck. And it is, it's a, an appalling story, but also very inspiring. And it was published by Dark Frog Books. Uh, Gordon McClellan is the publisher there. It's Dark Frog Blue, which is a traditional publishing uh, brand there. And it came out um, September or maybe wow. late August of 2023. So it's brand new. Nice. Um, so Sherry, let me ask about, you say it's, it's obviously based on a true story. How hard is it in a, a case like this to add that fictional element while doing justice to the true story? There's got to be a really fine balance to be had there. Well, thank you for asking that question because I think it's important for readers to know, and we, we do have an afterword that goes through the facts and fiction exactly what was fact and what was fiction and very, very little is fiction um, because everything that's in the story, even if it's not based from Hinda's tapes, was based on accounts that I read from the Holocaust. 
So things, everything that's in the book did happen, happened to someone mm-hmm. um, during that time. Um, Oops. But but for, but mainly, you know, it follows Hinda's story, and there's very few fictional 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 aspects. We had to shore up some of what happened to Wolf Yaskowitz, Moise's um, father. Uh, we didn't know a lot about his life prior to be. He was imprisoned at the Buchenwald concentration camp, and we didn't know a lot about his. Um, survival when the war started um, between those times. So there's a fictional family that was brought in to support his survival. But we outline that in the afterward, um, clearly telling the reader what was fact and what was fiction. Right. So it's not really fiction for the sake of it. It's more to fill in gaps where information might not have been available. Yes, correct. And even this was based on some fact in that uh, Wolf's parents, um, they owned a flour mill and he worked in the flour mill from the time he was 10 years old. And he delivered flour to bakeries. And so the family, the fictional family owned a bakery in town and had a farm outside of town. And they, they were very good to Wolf and helped him survive. So they were a fictional tool for his survival mm-hmm. and and also a fictional tool to show that a lot of properties and farms in particular were confiscated by the Third Reich government during that time because they wanted to instill the German culture into Poland. And so they would just confiscate a property and move a family out. And so that the Duca family, um, that is a fictional family in this story, um, they also you know, provided an avenue to, to show that. And, but that's historical, that's, also, that's fact, so. Mm-hmm. Moises, um, yes. oh, go ahead, no, go ahead, if you had something to add. Can you repeat the question, please? Sure, so I just wanted to ask you, at the end of this entire process, listening to the tapes, working uh, with Sherry to the to get this book written. What was it like for you when you finally saw the finished product? You see that finished book that Sherry just held up. That must have been, a, there must have been a lot of conflicting emotions for you when you see that finally in print. Actually, I, I felt very, very proud of Sherry, uh, of the book. Uh, she She's a tremendous partner. Uh, uh, and the book for me was an accomplishment. You know, uh, people ask me, how, how is the book doing in Amazon? You know, I answered them, you know, I, I really don't check because the book is done so for, I accomplished what I promised my mom. Uh, and uh, to me, that's more than enough. Yeah, it wasn't about selling X number of copies or anything like that. It was about your mom's wishes. Well, you know, it's not the selling, you know, because unfortunately things are correlated. I want people to read it. So therefore, you know, 
the book has to sell, but mm -hmm. you know, my, for me, the primary objective is for people to read the story of my mom. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, getting a copy of it myself. I'm looking forward to reading that. So um, I just want to thank you both for spending some time with me this evening. Um, it's an incredible story. It could be a movie. Uh, it, just the story you told about the escape was absolutely incredible. And I'm picturing that as a movie in my head. It's just almost the stuff of Hollywood, but what your mom sounded like an incredible woman. And uh, I'm very happy that you got to uh, fulfill her wish for her. So uh, Moises and Sherry, thank you very much for your time tonight. Um, I'm be happy to spread the word about the book as much as I can and, and get as many people to read it as possible. Thank you, Scott. We certainly Thank you so very much. Yes. Thank you.